Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, it's all about money. Uh, Money, money, money. And today we have a show dedicated to one of the most important issues on the American Shoreline, how to pay for coastal protection, resiliency, restoration projects at a time when the the amount of money required to respond to the changing conditions on the American shoreline is really going up. That's right, Peter. And so often the costs of a particular project are, if not entirely borne out, at least partially borne out by a local share, that it is the responsibility of a local municipality, a local county, to uh, raise this money and put it together for a project. Now, this is something that's near and dear to our hearts. And our good friends over at the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association have been working along with us uh, over the past several years on a local funding white paper. And that is the subject of today's show. It is. And we have with us the principal authors and policy folks behind the local funding working uh, white paper. It is produced by the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. On the show today, Derek Brockbank, the executive director of ASBPA and host of the Capital Beast podcast on ASPN, and his compatriot, Annie Mercer, who is an ASBPA fellow and did the hard work of pulling this white paper together. And one of the principal contributing authors, Shannon Cuniff, who is a board member of ASBPA, recently retired from the Environmental Defense Fund. And Shannon's coming to us today from Vieques, Puerto Rico. And I was sure interested in hearing about Vieques before the, before the show. But everybody, welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. Great to be here. Great Thank you. Here. Well, guys, we really look forward to getting into this discussion all about the local funding white paper. But before we do, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at thedunesciencegroup.com. 
Well, we really appreciate everybody who helps support ASBPA and the American Trailline Podcast Network. And this show is particularly important to communities all around the country. Derek is the executive director of ASBPA. Tell us why. Tell us a little bit about the white paper and why uh, the organization chose to produce this effort. Uh, sure, Peter. Thank you. And thank you for uh, having us. And and a big thank you to you. You mentioned some we have some of the principal authors. And I think you didn't give enough credit to you and Tyler, who were also principal authors on this paper. And really, uh, I don't think we would have done this without your contributions. Um, so the origination of this paper was at our coastal conference two years ago in Fort Lauderdale. We had a, a gentleman by the name of Alan Tenbrook uh, as a lunchtime speaker, and he's a, a coastal developer and, and beach advocate in Florida, in Sanibel Island, Florida. And um, he really challenged ASBPA to continue to think about how projects get funded and how to help communities in their quest to get funding, and not just at the federal level, as we all know, federal funding is hard to come by. You know, it's arguably getting less, but it certainly isn't growing very much. And so coastal communities are having to fund their own projects. Uh, and then so I think, Peter, you and I had a conversation after that and said, yeah, we really need to do something about this. So we kicked off a little working group and decided that really we needed to do a, a broad-based publication that looked at a lot of different funding options, ways communities are currently funding projects, and put that out there for the coastal community. So local officials, uh, consultants, people who are interested in, in developing beach projects and developing coastal projects but don't really know how to get started in that funding aspect have a place to turn. Um, so this report, uh, Local Funding for Coastal Projects, an Overview of Practices, Policies, and Considerations, is a broad brush uh, report. It doesn't go into a whole lot of depth on any single funding objective or funding type but covers a lot of different ones. In fact, I think we cover 10 or a dozen different tools in there. And then we'll get into that a little bit later. So uh, it was a really good process. We've um, we've been working on this, as I said, for two years. Peter, uh, you were just a tremendous champ in helping us frame this out, putting together a very, fairly extensive uh, outline of what the paper would be. And then we ended up with, I think, nine different authors who each sort of took sections and wrote some of it. So excited to talk a little bit about that today. Well, so are we, Derek. And... Um you know, I think that's a great overview of how we got there. Um, but I just thought it'd be worthwhile for us to share just really quickly that, you know, Peter and I, uh, and Peter, well before I was involved, used to uh, cook these uh, funding local funding plans up. This was our gig. And we would go from, you know, a, a community, say, like Charlotte County, uh, in Florida, on the Gulf side of Florida, and help them figure out how they were going to pay for the just beautiful beach uh, renourishment project that Michael Poff and his team at, Coast, at Coastal Engineering Consultants had designed. And in the process of, of doing this, we realized just how important it was to understand the local community, understand the specifics of the local pro project, and really communicate the, the minutia, the nuances of all of the different reasons, not only justifying the project, but also why our plan to pay for it was fair, equitable, something that the community could get behind and see the value in. 
And uh, I, when we heard that keynote address at Fort Lauderdale's uh, national conference a couple years ago, it really resonated with, with certainly Peter and I, and I'm sure many other people in the room, but I know for us, Peter, in particular, we were, we were still in the trenches of that Charlotte County project and had been ruminating quite a bit in the process of doing that funding plan about just how much we had to talk about beyond different types of taxing schemes. I mean, we really had to understand the history of the community, the real fabric of the community. It's true. And, you know, what I'm excited about today and getting to talk to, to you three uh, is about some of the more innovative new thinking that's going into project financial planning. And we're really uh, lucky to have on the call today uh, Shannon Cuniff, who was the principal author of the sections in the report in the white paper that deal with new funding practices. Shannon, do you mind uh, giving our re- uh, listeners a little bit of a flavor of what's changing in the universe of government and private sector pr- financing for shoreline projects? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think there are several things that are changing. Uh, m- most important, perhaps, is that the private sector uh, the investment sector is getting interested. Um, they see that there is a need for their capital and they're interested in deploy- deploying their capital and they see ways to, you know, get interest, earn interest and make a profit off of these kinds of projects. And so you're seeing a lot of tools being developed by them or with them uh, with that in mind. Um, the other thing is related to that, which is the um, different kind of tools that are focused on environmental benefits, you know, projects that generate um, an environmental outcome, and that there are some of these tools that are actually outcome-based so that the investment, the interest, for example, that's paid on is actually based on the, um, the, out, the having achieved the environmental outcome. So it reduces sort of the greenwashing that sometimes people have talked about um, because there are demonstrable, measurable benefits that can be pointed to. Hmm. You know, I do think that, Derek, this is one of the fundamental components of a lot of funding strategies when it comes to coastal projects is this beneficiary pays uh, uh, idea. Can you talk a little bit about about that, um, the connection between contributing parties the benefits generated. Um, why is this an important uh, element in financial planning these days? Because money isn't free, right? I think everyone wants to s- you figure out who else can pay for their project. Um, but the bottom line is if you want to restore a coastal project, someone needs to pay for it. You know, maybe you're lucky enough to, to secure a philanthropic grant where, you know, a, a foundation will come in and, and restore your coastline because it's you know, just so ecologically sensitive and critical that it just, it needs to be restored. But for, for most people, you need to figure out who benefits from, uh, from that coastline and they're the folks that need to pay for it. And so, um, this report talks about a couple different tools, um, starts with taxes, which is, you know, the concept that people are paying for their restoration project. You get into fees, which is similar to taxes, but rather than everyone being, uh, you paying sort of based on, their proximity or their expected value from the coast. You're dealing with who's actually using the resource. Um, And then I think the really 
great addition to this, which are, you know, fee, taxes and fees are things that people sort of think about, is the section that, that Shannon wrote, which are these financial instruments um, that allow uh, leveraging resources. So in many cases, you'll need to have some sort of base funding already. Um, you can have uh, uh, private capital be invested in coastal restoration if, for example, you're providing environmental return on benefit or you're reducing flood risk. And so those those flood risk benefits can be paid down through initial, initial capital. Um, so why do you need to financially plan? Because, you know, unless you have a really, really rich uncle or unless you have a ecosystem that's so critical that a philanthropic organization is going to pay for its restoration, everyone who benefits for that, that resource is going to need to contribute in some way. Definitely true. And, and, you know, I like to say there are no pennies from heaven. A lot of folks wish you could stand on the beach, see it erode and just wait until the money rains down. But it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, I want to pick up this beneficiary pays principle a little bit more. And, and Shannon, you you certainly have introduced and, and did a great job in describing environmental benefits and understanding ecosystem value and how that can contribute to the introduction of new financial instruments and investment in shoreline projects. I hear this stuff on the internet all the time in some chat room about, you know what, these beach projects, they're all about the front row people. They're the ones who get the benefit. There is a, tr- the truth here is the benefits of of effective shoreline management extend well beyond the front row. Um, Shannon, can you talk about the broader context of that and why environmental value is a is a legitimate consideration in developing funding strategies? Well, uh, you know, the ideas that are presented in this paper are, you know, you know, developing, finding the funding and also financing them. And they go beyond beach nourishment. The ideas presented can pay for diverse kinds of shore restoration, you know, from wetland restoration to mangrove reforestation or even reefs offshore. So, you know, thinking about the, the shoreline broadly, I think, helps folks understand, all, you know, some of the different benefits that can be construed. But when you restore, if you're just talking a beach, when you restore a beach, you nourish it. You know, ideally, you're stabilizing um, to a degree so that natural littoral functions can occur, that sand can be blown around into dunes and vegetation is there to trap it. And then if you have a healthy beach, it's more stable and it's protecting not only the people in the front row, but the entire, the barrier island, the entire island. Uh, So it's all of those people. And I think the other thing to think about is that how many people in the nation go someplace to a beach to recreate, to, you know, for vacations. Um, you know, they want clean water. They want to be able to catch fish or see bird habitat or see birds. So I think that, you know, we have to think about all of the different different uses of a beach and who cares about them. Right. Right. Go ahead, Derek. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in because one thing that I found really fascinating as I read and learned some of the stuff that Shannon was talking about is thinking about funding as not just a one-time or a fifty-year uh, expect. You know, you're not just you're not just funding for one time. All these projects are 
living projects and dynamic and changing, and they're exposed to the elements. And so some of the funding tools that, that Shannon describes are really sort of lifetime funding tools. So looking at insurance. So, okay, you raise enough funds to build a beach. Great. What happens if a hurricane hits your beach next week? Are you going to want, and you know, if you're not federally funded or you're, you're not protected under FEMA, um, are you going to want to go back to your citizenry and say, okay, well, I know we, we raised taxes last year, but we have to raise them again this year. Um, so some of the tools that, that Shannon talks about are, you know, parametric insurance, uh, catastrophe bonds, resilience bonds, things that allow communities to take the funding they have. And then if they get hit by a disaster, pay that out over many years. Um, so, you know, it's not just a one-time funding thing, but a, a, a funding for the, the life of a project or the life of a coastline. That's really an important can point. I, can I jump in for two? Please do. Sure. And, you know, one of the other ways to think about this is that, you know, there are several challenges to implementing a climate adaptation plan. You know, you've got to find the funding. You have to have sufficient capital for the plan. You have to have and build, then have, keep it public support. And then, you know, one way to do that is to ensure that the capital is used efficiently. The other way to do that, um, and just as important, is having those diverse partnerships with skin in the game. Because that really helps that that sustainability of the project, the sustainability of the funding no project, you know, um, lasts forever. And projects that are natural infrastructure, like a beach, are going to be subject to, you know, all these littoral forces, geological, geomorphological events, um, naturally. And when there is a storm, they do their job, and they do get damaged in doing that job, and they need to be repaired. And we need to understand that and be able to have sustainable long-term funding. That's such a good point. And I like that. I like the the way that you're describing this vested interest and in understanding who is benefited directly financially uh, by good shoreline management and the broader context that you're talking about, Shannon, of wetlands and oyster reefs and reefs and other components that these things produce real value. And the people with a vested interest it seems to me it is natural to uh, approach those communities and say, how do you help us keep this value in place for you? And I got to tell you, Derek, one of the things I have absolutely loved about uh, ASBPA's work over the years is the economic analysis that ASBPA has supported with Dr. James Houston. Uh, can you talk a little bit about does this investment make sense? And, and, and I think Houston is, you know, done such an incredible job of analyzing that question. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So Dr. Houston is uh, director emeritus of the Army Corps Engineering Research and Development Center uh, in Vicksburg, has done a, a good deal of work at looking at the value beaches provide to the nation as a whole. And um, what they bring in in terms of tourism revenue, uh, tax revenue generated from tourism, and it's you know it's it's tremendous. I think it's in the order of two hundred billion dollars a year uh, of economic uh, development from from beaches. I might I, I could be off by a order of magnitude there, but it's a just a phenomenal sum um, because so many people do recreate or at least determine where they will recreate based on beaches. And so there's a tremendous value to a local community, a tremendous value to 
um, a state community, the regional community, and even to the nation when you think about uh, particular places like Florida and Hawaii and, and even California that really draw international tourists, um, drawn at least in part based on, uh, on beaches. Uh, and I think that the point there is that there are a lot of different stakeholders and who, who benefits um, from the beaches. And I think one of the things that this report gets to is that you need to combine those, right? So just because you're not getting federal funding doesn't mean, okay, well, the local community has to figure out a way that it can all be, you just have to create one tax structure that will then fund it. I think this is a little bit of a, you know, a menu of options, right? So maybe you create a tax structure where people who are living on the beach pay a little bit more than the people who are living, you know, a block or two away from the beach. But even those people that are in the general community would still need to pay a tax. You add in a, a, a bed tax. So all those tourists that are coming in might be paying a little bit of a tax. Maybe you add in some user fees, you know, parking fees or, or fees for concessionaires to, you know, sell food or, or, or beach chairs on the beach. Um, and then add in, uh, a resilience bond where, you know, a giant multi-conglomerate reinsurance company is actually, you know, buying down the flood risk that they face. So if they're going to, you know, if if a hurricane comes and wipes the community out, it's going to be that reinsurance company that's on the hook to pay for that. So if if building a a beach and a dune system reduces their risk for, you know, loss due to flood, maybe they're willing to invest a little bit in that um, too to buy down some of their flood risk. So you can start piecing all these things together and what seems like a phenomenally expensive project all of a sudden seems a bit more manageable. I mean, it still might be expensive, but it's no longer as daunting. You know, Derek, I, I, there's two things that you touched on there that I want to circle back to. Um, and I think I'll, I want to start with just the the cost. And uh, Peter uh, previously mentioned this idea that uh, ASBPA has championed the study of the economic value of a healthy beach system uh, to a local uh, and even regional economy. Uh, the beach, ladies and gentlemen, has a huge economic impact. And uh, in certain communities, it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but it's, it is very true that these beach renourishment projects are expensive and, uh, talk a little bit, help our listeners understand where, where this money goes to. Why are beach renourishment projects so expensive to begin with? Moving dirt isn't cheap. Um, most beach projects, uh, your, your sand, uh, and you're looking, you know, sand projects can be anywhere from a couple, you know, 10,000 cubic yards of sand. If you're looking at a real small pocket beach to tens of millions of cubic yards, if you're looking at, you know, restoring an entire barrier Island and that sand for the really large projects is typically coming from offshore. So you need to bring in dredges that are going to work around the clock to, uh, take sand up from a, from a borrow area offshore and pump it onto the beach, or you're actually looking at truckloads of sand coming from inland mines. Uh, and that's that gets even more expensive because you're looking at, you know, sometimes thousands of uh, truckloads of sand. So it's just a, it's a major construction op- uh, operation. And, you know, I mean, 40 million can seem like a, you know, a, a huge expense, but, you know, a baseball stadium can be 10 times that. So um, it sort of depends on what you're prioritizing. I mean, Florida has, has looked at that and they've, you know, they've subsidized uh, spring training facilities to draw tourism. But 
it's you know a drop in the bucket compared to what Florida beaches provide in terms of tourism to Florida. Right on. And I think you know in light of the substantial investment required, um, the the bottom line is here we're talking about putting together financial strategies that draw new revenues into the picture to respond to the problems. And uh, it's it's fundamentally a political, I think, and tricky business to do. Uh, we don't like to raise taxes. Local elected officials especially try to avoid uh, doing that if they can. Um, and I want to direct this question to Annie, uh, Annie, who you know, dealt with all of the nine authors and really did the hard work of making this paper uh, come to a reality. Uh, Annie, you're new to Washington, D.C. You're up there as an ASBPA fellow, uh, dipping your toe into the universe of D.C. politics. Um, Could you share your impressions about the role that politics plays in funding and what you've sort of observed as a as a new professional uh, in the D.C. area? Sure. Um, Before I dipped my toe in D.C., I worked with my dad um, on the beach at the very end of every project, (laughs) putting in the sand fence and the vegetation um, afterwards. And so that's such a small part of a very larger puzzle. Um, And I never really considered where we were getting the money. I just knew we were getting money and I could still go to school. And, you know, I was getting all these opportunities because of that. So this paper definitely kind of flipped the script um, for me and let me see things from the other side. Um, And I thought it was really interesting to see. um, Derek always comes in and talks about the appropriations bills. And I'd, of course, heard when I was working with people in um, North Carolina about, you know, getting their money from FEMA for the projects that we were doing. And, you know, um, now getting to talk to these people and, and getting to be in these meetings and learning about, you know, what really goes into it. It, It's just a a lot bigger of a process than I thought. And I think that that's one of the reasons that this paper is so important is because when individuals are facing that financial structure and looking and saying, how am I going to fund this huge project that goes from getting the money and getting the permits and getting the sand moved from offshore to the place that I want it. And then, putting up the sand fence and the vegetation and hoping people don't walk on it. Um, it, It's just, it's kind of scary. And so this paper definitely opened my eyes to see how I could break that down and it could become a lot more manageable. And I just have to say, Annie, you did just an awesome job corralling the, uh, corralling the authors here. I would agree. Present company included. Uh, Because we, uh, when we first started this, it was pre-Coastal News Today and ASPN for Peter and I. And um, as our commitment to uh, this podcast network and to CoastalNewsToday.com uh, increased, we stepped away a, a little bit from the local funding working group. And Annie, you swept in and, and kept us on focus and made sure that this thing uh, was finished. And, you know, Derek, I've got to say thank you to you as well for... Uh, seeing this thing through to completion because it is important. And, you know, one of the things that I, I want to talk about, and Annie, I think you, you've alluded to this. I'll direct this one at Derek, though, is the unique considerations that each community has. And if you're a 
a, a, a mayor of a coastal community or a council member or a, a, someone that that works for a county or city, you're probably thinking, yeah, well, that might work in Miami, but how's that going to work in my small beach town? Or, oh, well, that beach town's all privately owned and our beach is public and there's a park there. How are we going to manage that? Uh, Derek, talk a little bit about the importance and uh, work of working into the fold, the local funding, the local community considerations that will ultimately end up in the local funding plan. Well, I mean, you said it, Tyler. I mean, figuring out what those community considerations are ahead of time before you put together a funding plan can save a lot of time, sweat, and uh, you know, and mistakes along the way. I mean, if you're a there's certainly some obvious ones, right? If you're a big uh, uh, tourism community and you have a lot of hotels right on the beach, then a bed tax is your obvious answer. But I think it's very easy to, for people to get caught up with the, oh, well, it's just, just a bed tax. Make the tourists pay for it. But what about those stretches of beaches that really aren't... Um, are, you know they're not they're not there for uh, for high rise condos and and um, and hotels. How are you going to pay for those? So looking at those community characteristics, what's the what what's the what's the type of beach that it is? What's the type of um, clientele that it serves can really can really help. And I think you guys did a nice job. I think that was a section that that Peter wrote about things to think about before you embark on. Um, before you embark on a funding strategy. And I think that speaks to the fact that it can often be helpful to hire a consultant, to hire someone who can help you think through this rather than just jumping jumping right in. Well, I'll tell you, Derek, I'll tell you, Derek I, I do think it, it does help to have a consultant, but be, and the reason I think it does is having someone stand in, in, in the community conversation uh, as a free agent and, that can think with the community, take the arrows, because when you start talking about money, there's, there's a lot of strong feelings. And uh, being separated from, um, from the elected officials can help that conversation move forward. Uh, but I would like to ask Shannon, uh, Shannon, in your career at the Environmental Defense Fund and your work on coastal resiliency, you really have, it seems, written extensively about the financial aspects of, of these things. And uh, I wanted to ask you, after so many uh, uh, decades of working in, in this practice uh, and with the increasing demands and costs for shoreline response, are you optimistic that we are going to be able to financially uh, respond to this? How, how does the landscape look to you? Well, I think that the coastal communities in particular are in for a hard time. I mean, they're already experiencing the effects of uh, more frequent high tides and more frequent storms, uh, rising sea levels. And I think one of the challenges that the federal government is going to have is how to prioritize its response. and Where do they um, spend their limited dollars? And that right now means, under the current federal rules, uh, you know, places that have high density, high, high, um, lots of infrastructure is basically what I mean to say. So high value in that regard, um, that they um, provide benefits to the nation um, and and the national economy. So communities that are more, you know, touristic in nature or smaller rural communities are going to have to get really creative. And um, I think one of the interesting things that comes out of this paper is that some of the tools, particularly the innovative tools section, 
talks to how to make a deal uh, that is attractive to the private sector, not only you know, not only to attract them, but to actually facilitate their participation. Because typically, federal and state organizations don't have a way to accept private money. It's like seen as bribery. But there is a way to create a transaction that uh, where the private sector can facilitate some aspect of that transaction. So, you know, pay, um, for example, a performance bonus. If you get this amount of beach dune uh, vegetated and growing this high, well, then you're a high-performing project and we're going to kick in more money because we, the businesses, the restaurants along the boardwalk, for example, uh, are safer. Our, you know, we are going to have conti- you know, continuity of operations because, you know, the boardwalk isn't going to disappear and our customers can come. And so you have to think about, this is where a consultant can come in and help you think about what your assets are, but also what are your risks and what is the benefit they're receiving and what is the, you know, the cost they're avoiding. Because if they participate in one of these projects, maybe that project actually comes to proficient proof to fruition much sooner. So that's, I think, you know, partly the benefit of that contract coming in and thinking about things. So I just wanted to tie that to your prior point. Absolutely, Shannon. I think that's a great, a great uh, comment, uh, especially because uh, we are, I think, becoming increasingly aware of the interconnectivity of the the shoreline. And when you have, and, and when I say interconnectivity, this is, I think perhaps most easily understood uh, economically. And Shannon, I think you just absolutely uh, hit the nail on the head there that there are beneficiaries to these projects that uh, go beyond what I think we might normally think of as just that, as Peter said earlier, that just that front row or just simply the coastal protection benefits. Uh, There's absolutely uh, tourism benefits for those restaurants. It can improve the view. In the case of South Padre Island, Peter, we were just there. The dune system, which they have built via uh, local funded uh, BUDM work, has grown like 100 yards. And it is absolutely beautiful. When you're sitting out there at the Palms Resort and Cafe on the beach, (laughs) big shout out to them. you, it's it's beautiful. You've got this kind of for, dune forest there uh, between you and the water. That is definitely an additional benefit uh, that the taxpayers have reaped in their investment. No doubt. And it's about that complexity and about understanding the intricacies of how these projects function in the real world. Uh, Derek, closing thoughts? Well, I actually wanted to see if I could pass my closing thoughts to Annie. I, I have one question for her. Sure. Um, we wrote the paper really not to be the in-depth consultant that you can hire, but to be that high level, you can learn learn a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and Annie is, as, as we talk, as you mentioned, newer to the policy side of this, although she's been planting dunes with her, her father at Coastal Transplants for a, quite a while. Um, so Annie, you compiled this, so you were really in charge of putting all these pieces together, which meant you had to learn a lot in a short amount of time to make sure it all made sense. So what did you... What did you find the most interesting? What thing did you learn uh, that you didn't know before that you found really interesting? I guess for me, the the most interesting thing was how many tools are out there. I mean, we, again, we only put in 10 or 12 to be this broad brushstroke of, you know, 
focusing on things that people have tried and true used over and over again, and then focusing on Shannon's section of, you know, sprinkling in these new things that we think people should really talk about. But there was a lot of stuff that we didn't even get to talk about. Um, we were on a call with some individuals from Florida talking about how um, Miami County, when they go into an area and do any sort of like economic redevelopment, they have to do a tax. Like it's a, they have to set aside a part of that money to go towards beach renourishment, which, you know, I don't know if they do that where I am from, but it sounds like a great investment. And, you know, we just didn't have the time or the money or well, obviously the money, <laughs> but um, we just didn't have the time to add that into our paper um, bit for this round. But, you know, I just really enjoyed getting to know all of the different tools that are out there because it, it definitely kind of, you know, calms my mind knowing that my local community does have the tools out there to get projects done, even if the government can't help us when, when we need it. Well, well said, Annie. And again, uh, <clears throat> thank you for your effort in rescuing uh, this paper and working with all of the contributors. Ladies and gentlemen, ASBPA's Local Funding for Coastal Projects, an overview of practices, policies, and consideration is available free online at asbpa.org. And I want to thank the guests who took the time to, to introduce this paper to the, our listeners. Derek Brockbank, the executive director of ASBPA and host of the Capital Beach podcast. Shannon Cunniff from Vieques, Puerto Rico. I want to go there, Shannon. And longtime uh, professional at the Environmental Defense Fund. And Annie Mercer, ASBPA's new fellow in the bedrock to getting this project done. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. And uh, take a look at this paper if you're a local government official facing a big challenge with money. This paper will help you get a start on understanding what you can do. It's a great effort. And uh, we really appreciate everybody's effort and work and uh, being on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. And thanks for your help on the paper, Peter. Hey.